seated. Good evening to you. 1 Samuel chapter 20. In our journey through the scriptures on Sunday night, Genesis to Revelation. If you're here with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there's men coming up the aisle right now. Just raise your hand and and they'll spot you and they'll get a Bible into your hands. We want you to be able to follow along, not only listening to what we have to say, but also seeing it with your own eyes. Just by way of reminder and establishing a little bit of context for where we are here in chapter 20, Saul is the king over Israel, and he is, by the day, by the year, by the chapter, becoming more and more unstable. And he's a very fearful man. He's dominated by his fears. He's a very paranoid man. Uh, he's a very jealous man. These are dangerous characteristics in any of our lives as just regular human beings. But the more authority a person has in life in terms of the position that's been given to them, whether in a secular level or given to them as Saul had it by, by God, the more people that are affected by these traits that don't really come from God. And so he is greatly threatened uh, by David, David's successes and David's popularity. And so his uh, decision for how to deal with that David's godliness, David's relationship with God, God's favor on David is rather than learning from David what he should have, and that is the need for Saul to repent of his sin, draw back to God, uh, Saul decides that the best thing to do is to kill David. So in chapter 19, there were three uh, major attempts made by Saul to murder David, the future king of Israel, uh, one by trying to impale him with a spear and, and into the wall. Saul attempted to do that himself. Attempt, sent assassins to David's home with his wife, Michael, in order to kill him there. And Michael, his wife, assisted him in, in fleeing and then did a delaying action long enough for David to get a head start uh, out of town to, to get ahead of these men. And then when David went to uh, Naboth where uh, Samuel had kind of a school of the prophets there, um, Saul sent three series of assassins or soldiers uh, who specialized in death to go and kill David. And as they came into these meetings, uh, Samuel is, has this school where he's training prophets to be a, a spiritual influence in the nation Rather than these assassins coming in and dominating what God was doing there, God just overtook them and they began to prophesy. Saul finally uh, frustrated with their uh, lack of success in killing David, goes there himself in order to try and kill David himself, and he is overcome by the Spirit of God uh, as well and begins to prophesy. God keeps him in that condition for an extended period of time, not because Saul was any kind of a spiritual person. He was a very unspiritual person. But in order to keep him in that, that uh, kind of state by the Spirit of God so that David could once again flee and get out of, ahead of this man who was trying to murder him. Isn't it great to be anointed? <laughs> Isn't it great to be the next king of Israel? I mean, it's uh, wild. I 
I look at this season in David's life and I, and there's just one phrase that comes to mind. This is anointed? Now we have funny ideas about the anointing, don't we? I mean, it's, we think that the anointing is always about a mountaintop experience, some church experience, some, you know, dynamic moment in, in time. But, uh, to be anointed has its, it has its valleys too and it has its deep seasons of preparation and uh, difficulty in life. And so David is in one of, those, uh, one of those places. But he's anointed by God and he's called by God to be the next king. This is all part of his preparation. And so then chapter 20 verse 1, Then David fled from uh, Naoth in Ramah and, went, and he said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity or my sin? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And so David uh, seeks out Jonathan to discuss this whole situation of his father attempting to kill him repeatedly. And, um, and, and he really is expressing his distress. This, uh, there in verse 1 he repeats over and over again uh, these questions that indicate how uh, all of these things have really kind of shook him up. And David's trying to convince Jonathan, his very, very good friend, that he is in very real danger that his father is trying to kill him. Now apparently Saul has kept this away from Jonathan because Jonathan doesn't believe it. You know, he's going to kind of say to David, listen, dad has his ups, he has his downs, but I mean, trying to kill you, David, I think you're taking a little too far. And, and David realizes, all right, his, Saul is not telling his son uh, everything that there is to, to know about uh, all of this. And so he, Jonathan said to him, by no means... You shall not die. Indeed, my father will do uh, nothing either great or small without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. David, listen, if he wanted to kill you I'd be, and was trying to kill you, I'd be the first to know. And if I knew, I would tell you. So Jonathan's heart is right. His heart is very soft and, and loyal toward David. But... Uh, he's very wrong here. And then David took an oath again and he said, and David rightly assesses the situation. He said, your, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes, that we're friends. And he has said, don't let Jonathan know this, that I'm trying to kill him, lest he be troubled by it or grieved by it. But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, now that's a lot of living. Because God never dies, and uh, Jonathan was alive right in front of him. There is but a step between me and death. David said to Jonathan, listen, buddy, I don't... He probably didn't say, buddy, you're my friend, you know. But listen, you're looking at a dead man. I know what I'm talking about here. Your dad is trying to kill me. Trust me on these issues. There is only a step, just the smallest gap of distance between me being alive and me being dead. That's how, uh, you know, uh, purposeful your father is in, in seeking out uh, my death. And so Jonathan said to David, he said, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And, and essentially what Jonathan is saying to David is, All right, 
You see my dad one way. I see my dad another way. And obviously you consider the stakes to be life and death in, in terms of how serious they are. So what I'm going to do is give you an opportunity. You give me any plan that you want me to be a part of that you can come up with that will expose what my father's heart really is toward you. And so that's the invitation that he's given to him. You tell me what to do, I'll do it. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and if I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day. It, let, me, let me start over, verse 5. And, and David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his hometown, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all of his family. If your dad says, hey, a-okay with me, your servant will be safe. I'll know that his, he, he's not seeking my death. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. That'll be the proof. If he just says, hey, no big deal, I'm glad David went to Bethlehem and he's with his family and, and all, then, then I, his heart is right toward me. But if he explodes in anger, we'll know that he wants uh, to kill me. And therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why shall you bring me to your father? And so uh, David makes this request of him and uh, uh, in or Jonathan gives him this whole plan of, I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do here. And uh, David comes up with this plan. Now, they had this uh, uh, meal, this new moon meal that's spoken of in the law. And it was a monthly celebration that they would have, uh, according to the law of Moses, to kind of celebrate the incoming of the month. And so it was a celebration of a new month, a new month that's come from God. And so it was, it was kind of a monthly big deal. And so apparently in Saul's kind of cabinet, and he would uh, require his uh, upper cabinet members and his high officers in the military to be at that meal. David was one of those people in, in, uh, around Saul, and uh, so uh, he was to be at that meal, and he would have been missed, and David knew that he would be uh, missed. And so this was the plan that he laid out. Now one of the things that's interesting here is that he does ask uh, Jonathan to lie here in putting this, well, if he asks this, then tell him this lie that I'm going to Bethlehem and all. The Bible, does, it doesn't mean that God endorses what David is doing here. Um, a lot of times the Bible simply records the fact of what it is that is going on. And when this whole thing plays out, Saul is going to reveal the wickedness of his heart and uh, in his desire to kill David. And it looks like as you look at the passage and in, in, in life goes on for David, it looks like you know David uh, kind of got away with it and lying isn't a big deal to God. But it is a big deal to God. And, and so one of the things that's, that is uh, 
Anytime we resort to lying, it's an evidence that we're no longer trusting God in the situation. Uh, That he has power to overrule the situation for his purposes. So it represents a lack of faith. And if I think that God, I've got to jump in and help God with my carnal self, right there in First and Second Fleshalonians, but I've got to jump in and I've got to tell a lie or something like that, sometimes, you know, the thing ends up working out. But if we had told the truth, then the, God would have protected us in a different way. And instead of looking back on that situation in our life and saying, wow, wasn't that amazing what God did and how good He was and how gracious He was to me in that situation, we've, we've taken that off of the table and now we're forced to look back and God's going to be gracious, God's going to be good, He's going to be faithful, He's going to take care of us, David's going to be king someday, all that's going to be happen, happening. But... As we continue to grow in the Lord and we get closer to the Lord, we can then look back on a season like that and say, Rats, I wish I would have, you know, done what God called me to do there, walked in faith, and seen what God would have risen up and done. So it it removes kind of a praise report. It removes a a neat thing that could have happened in in our own history. And sometimes people can look at that and say, Well, that's no big loss. It is a big loss. As we grow closer to the Lord and the longer we walk with the Lord and we realize, you know, how relatively few opportunities there are for that in our lives. Another chance, we're here caught in this difficult place, another chance for God's got, God's got to do it or it's just not going to happen. Another chance where God's got to do a miracle in our lives. And those aren't daily events in terms of us overtly recognizing that. So those are seasons we don't want to just fritter away. We want God to flex His strong right arm and, and show Himself strong on our behalf. And so He kind of he, he throws away being able to look back and say, uh, look back at this with you know, a great sense of satisfaction. He's, he's not helping God out uh, much at all. Um, most of my help is hardly helpful for God candidly. But Jonathan said, far be it from you, as as David said, listen, if you're going to turn me over to your father and if this whole thing is a trap, just kill me out in the field right now. I mean, don't don't hand me over to your dad. Jonathan kind of considers that an affront. And he said, far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me, or what if your father answers roughly? Who's going to bring me news of, of his response to this kind of thing that we're putting out in front of him? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. And so they, both of them went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you. I'll send you away that you may go in safety and the father and the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So I'm going to let you know uh, whatever the result is of this thing that you've put before me to do. And you shall 
not only show me the kindness of the Lord uh, while I am still alive, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And so Jonathan says, I'll do this thing that you've asked me to do. And then he makes a covenant with David, and the request that he makes of David is that when David becomes the king of Israel, number one, that he will not execute Jonathan, and he will not execute Jonathan's descendants. In the ancient world, uh, if there was some kind of a, a, uh, a king jumped out of a bloodline, in other words, there was a king, and then somebody else became the king that wasn't a son or part of the blood of that previous king, then typically the king that came into the position would kill all of the blood descendants of the previous king so that there, there would be no chance for that bloodline to rise up and be a competition to them for, for their bloodline now becoming the bloodline of the kings uh, in, in that particular nation. And so this kind of stuff was very, very normal in the ancient world. And uh, so Jonathan just says, when you become the king, I only ask that you don't kill me and you don't kill my descendants. And so it gives you an idea of, of how common it was that he would need to make that request. Now, this is really very, very beautiful on Jonathan's part because it's a great encouragement to David's faith in the promises of, of God upon his life. He's telling David, you're going to be the king. God told you you're going to be the next king of Israel. I'm not going to be the next king of Israel. Bloodline, schmubline, doesn't make any difference. David, you're going to be the king. Nothing my father has got planned against you. Nothing that all of your enemies, all of the people that are aligned with Saul are going to change that. God's plan and God's word and His promise for you is going to have the final say in your life. And when you're king... Don't kill me. That's how sure it is. I want a promise from you. And don't kill my descendants. You think about, here is David at a time in his life. I trust we've all been through it to some degree or another. I hope not too deeply, but to some degree. Where it looks like the promise of God for his life. I mean, here he is. I am one step away from death. I am barely outrunning it. And I don't know how long I'm going to be able to outrun it. And it looks like God's promises for my life are going to be proven, you know, to be wrong. And he's confused. And he's lost faith. And you look at him and you say, where is the guy that fought against Goliath? We've all got feet of clay. Jesus is the one hero of the Bible. Don't get your eyes on anyone else but Him. He's the only one that never fails. We can, be Goliath, we can defeat a Goliath out in the field in one day, and in another week people won't even recognize our lack of faith. We'll be glad one day to be in heaven. We'll put this tent aside, and there'll be no interruption in our faith at that time. There'll be no interruption to our praise. But we're not in heaven yet. 
And so here he is, he's confused and his faith is shaken and, and all that he's in the middle of. And to have somebody believe in you and believe in God's call on your life when you don't even believe it anymore, that's a priceless friend. That's what he had in Jonathan. It is so important, the power of encouragement. Not, and I can say, especially toward a young person where God's got a call on their life, they're discouraged about it, you see it, you recognize it, and to encourage them in it. But it really goes for all of us. And Jonathan does something wonderful here, because when David no longer believed in it, no longer believed that it might be a reality about his life, somebody else believed and kept the smoking flax from being quenched and the bruised reed from being broken. And it's a good, that's a good friend. And Jonathan was a good friend and he needed somebody who had a greater faith. David needed someone who had a greater faith and the promises toward him than even he did at that point. And Jonathan did. And praise the Lord for those that are that way in our own lives as well. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him. And so there's just this beautiful love relationship between them, the depth of the friendship, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan was like Christ in this. He... Um, and as and is, is Christ has called us to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And Jonathan loved David more than he loved himself. That's the, the kind of friend that he was for David. And then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow's the new moon. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. It will be conspicuous. Nobody missed that meal in Saul's cabinet. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone Azel. So he's saying, after you're missed, after I discover what the reaction of your father is to my father is uh, to your absence, then this is how I'm going to report that news to you. So we'll uh, go back, meet by the stone Azel, and then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad, who it's always nice when you're an archer and you have someone that will go get your arrows for you. So, he, you know, when you're the king's son, you have those kind of people. So he said, I'm going to go out shooting. I'll have a, a, a lad with me that, to pick the arrows up. And uh, so if I say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. If, I, if you see me shoot the arrows and I say to the boy, come, they're closer, come closer to find them, then David will know he can come back home and everything's okay. He said, um, but if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. So if I shoot the arrows and say, 
They're beyond you. Go, go, keep going. That would be a communication, not supremely to the lad, but supremely to David. Get out of here. My dad, you were right about my dad. And so then Jonathan departs from him at this point, reminding him of the covenant uh, uh, with his, his lineage. And David then hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul didn't say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. And so there was uh, lots of ways to be rendered ceremonially unclean under the Jewish law. One way was to touch a dead body. David was a, a general, so to speak, in the high military officer in, in Israel's military. David, John, uh, Saul is probably thinking, well, he touched a dead body. And if you did, you were unclean through that day and you weren't ceremonially cleansed till the end of the day. You were clean the next day. So he thought, ah, oh, he's probably touched a body or something. Ceremonial unclean. We'll see him tomorrow. Now, it isn't that uh, Saul was thinking, boy, I just, you know, dinner's just not the same without David. I hardly enjoyed my dessert. The, having him there was a way for Saul to keep an eye on him. What's the old saying about keeping your friends close and your enemies closer so you can keep an eye on them? Well, Saul believed in that kind of stuff. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse, won't even call him by name, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today? And so Jonathan, he answered uh, Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. I mean, this was really important to him, Dad. And he said, please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. Brother is the head of the family. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. So, uh, therefore, he has not come to the table. Daddy, it's, it's not that he's just... Uh, gone AWOL on us here. He did ask permission, but he asked permission of me. This is what he wanted to do, and I granted him permission. Now, here's the answer for whether Jonathan is right or David is right about Saul. Then Saul's anger was aroused, not against David, but against Jonathan as a friend. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, you don't want to know that in the Hebrew. <laughs> now, basically, what, he, what he's saying here, and it's very disrespectful toward his wife and, uh, and very disrespectful toward uh, Jonathan's mother, but basically what he's saying is a couple of things here. He's saying, you're acting like you're, acting like you're just an illegitimate child that was born into this world. And, and I'm not putting down illegitimate children tonight. But he's saying, you're, you're acting like you're not the next king of Israel. You're acting like you don't know who your father and your mother are. You're acting like your father isn't the king of Israel and that you're going to be the next king of Israel. 
You're acting like you are destined to the lowest stations in life. That's the way you're, you're treating uh, your decision-making right now. And I think that Saul is also saying that everything I'm seeing you in you right now uh, does not come from my side of the family, but it comes from your mother's side of the family. Most parents are driven there sooner or later uh, in frustration, but not to this kind of, of a degree. So he's really frying right now on this, and there's nothing commendable about it at all. But it's, it's more than him just swearing or getting, you know, all worked up. He's, he's, really, he's really saying, you, you, have, uh, you are throwing away uh, in, 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 you know, your whole destiny, and, he, and he's... Uh, and, and of course, in, in this, Jonathan was nothing like his father. Uh, Jonathan doesn't have a selfish, uh, selfishly ambitious bone in his body. His father's going to try and provoke jealousy in him all the way through the passage. And he, he, simp, uh, he either is without the capacity for it, which I don't believe, or, or it's of no interest to him. He knows it's a dangerous thing and he puts it off. Saul, his father, is just absolutely dominated by jealousy. But he cannot provoke it in his son. His son is a deeply spiritual young man. And so he said, Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? So he's talking about the night that uh, Jonathan was conceived. So he said, What you're doing, Jonathan, in essence, this is what he's saying, is you're wasting your life. This meant you, if you allow David to live, he will be the next king of Israel. I want you to be the next king of Israel. If you do not rise up and, and thwart David at this point in time, you're going to throw your whole life away, all the way back. You're going to waste your life all the way back to the moment of conception. You're about to throw your whole life away, son, by the decision that you're making here protecting this son of Jesse. Now, it is interesting, he won't call David by name. <laughs> and he won't call him David the giant killer. He won't refer to him as the source of the song of the one who has killed his tens of thousands. The worst thing that he can bring up against the character of David in his tirade here is his humble beginnings. Now, listen, you're living right and you're living good when the greatest thing a person can throw in your face is the humbleness of our beginnings or our family or our origin in life and that's all that he can do is is he comes from this nothing family he's a nobody from a nothing family this son of Jesse there in Bethlehem and so for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established as king, nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Deliver him up. If you won't take care of it, I'll take care of it for you. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? Oh boy, here he is making sense to an insane man. Why should he be killed? What has he done? Now the law of Moses requires... You just can't go around killing people. As the king of Israel, or as anybody in Israel, there's a law of Moses. You don't murder people. 
So what is the capital crime, he's asking his dad, that he's guilty of that gives even you the power as king uh, to, to kill him? What has he done? And, the, and, and when you don't have an answer, uh, then you throw a spear. So then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him. This guy always had a spear in his hand. So he cast a spear at his own son with the intent of killing him. I mean, that's... Okay. You thought your house was dysfunctional. Listen, every house has been dysfunctional since the garden. Not this bad, thankfully, but this is a mess. So he tries to kill his own son by which Jonathan, lights are going on for him, he knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Well, better late uh, than never here on this, but he, he suddenly realizes, wow, I've been a little bit naive here uh, related to my father, and David was right. And so Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. So he's grieved, obviously. He's, again, he's a spiritual man. He's grieved by his father's actions. He's ashamed of his father. It's sad to be ashamed of your father. He's ashamed of his father. And he ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so in getting up and, and uh, leaving the meal like this, this was an ins a public insult that was directed toward his uh, father. And so... Uh, here he is, uh, you know, the old saying is, is that blood is thicker than water, but uh, there's a, a better saying, and that is right is, is thicker than blood. And that's what he chooses to do. Righteousness is thicker than blood. And he chooses to do the right thing, no matter what uh, it does to his relationship with his father. And, and so he departs uh, uh, from, from him at that point. Reminds us, of course, of Jesus's. Uh, teaching where he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, or children, brothers or sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And there can be times when we're forced to choose between family and the Lord, and we have to make the choice toward the Lord. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him, just as promised. And he said to uh, his lad, Now run and find the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him, thankfully. And then the lad, this, this, this is a violation of all archery rules as we know them, but apparently he was quite a marksman and the boy wasn't nearly in any kind of danger. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And he's, again, supremely not speaking to the boy, but he is communicating to David. And uh, so, David, it's bad news. You were right. You're going to have to run. And Jonathan cried out, after the lad, make haste, hurry, don't delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows, came back to his master, but the lad didn't know anything about David being out in the field. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. The larger 
you know, thing that was being played out there. And then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, go carry them uh, into the city. Now, David and Jonathan are going to talk here in just a moment. And you look and say, well, why all the theatrics if they were just going to end up talking anyway? Jonathan didn't know that the circumstances would work out just the way that they did, that he would have the freedom to talk with with David so apparently things line up and he realizes he's been able to communicate this way but he is going to have a chance to speak to him face to face as well as soon as the lad was gone David arose from a place toward the south and he fell on his face to the ground and he bowed down three times and they kissed one another and uh, so this oriental expression uh, where kissing on the cheeks and greeting one another men happens all over the world uh, even today and so uh, a sign of affection and a sign of greeting they wept together but David more so and so they both know David's going to be having to leave and uh, they don't know if they're ever going to see one another and so there's a broken heartedness over the fact that the wickedness of this uh, King Saul um, is, is going to uh, you know uh, mean the uh, the end of their relationship at least it looks like that at, at this particular point and so they wept together but David even more so a beautiful relationship uh, between them beautiful just that's those are good friendships and then Jonathan said to David go in peace since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord saying may the Lord be between you and me between your descendants and my descendants forever so he arose and departed Jonathan went into the city and so uh, as as they uh, part from each other they don't have uh, you know any idea that they're ever going to see one another again they will see one another uh, I think one final time and all but uh, Jonathan returns to the city and uh, and he sends J David on his way quickly because time was of the essence uh, for uh, David to get going uh, and and uh, because people were looking for him at this point and so this begins David's life as a fugitive now uh, fleeing to stay kind of one step ahead of being captured and, and being killed. At least that's how it looked in the, in the natural. Chapter 21. Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And uh, Ahimelech was the, the high priest at that time in Israel's history. David was very familiar with him apparently. Um, while he was kind of an official in, in, in Saul's cabinet, um, he somewhat frequently went to Ahimelech for uh, instruction and the guidance of the Lord. We'll see that in the next chapter, which we won't get into this evening. So he had a history, a spiritual history with Ahimelech. And, uh, and, and so he came there uh, to him. Ahimelech, upon seeing him, and basically what David is, is looking for is, once you're on the lamb like this and you're being hunted down, I mean, you think about this, you're not just being hunted down by a family or two or maybe, uh, uh, you know, some crazy, one single crazy person. Saul is able to mobilize the whole nation against you. 
He's still the king. He's still got eyes and ears everywhere people are. So he's, he's in a very, very dangerous place. It'd be like you and me trying to run and, and get ahead of you know, the full forces of the U.S. government trying to hunt us down. And so uh, that would you know, be a, a formidable thing to try and, and accomplish. So if you're going to run and you're going to run for your life, you need two things and you've been cut off the way he's been cut off. Number one, you need food because you've got to have fuel to run. And then number two, you need a weapon. So he needs food and he needs a weapon. So this is, this is what he's got in mind, uh, the two great urgent needs in his life when he comes to Nob. And Ahimelech was afraid when he, uh, when he met David and he said to him, uh, why are you alone and no one is with you? Now literally we see the reaction of Ahimelech here is one of fear. And literally that word fear, being afraid, the scriptures means he went trembling to meet him. When Ahimelech saw David alone, he, gets, he starts to get the shakes. He's just involuntarily, I mean, he's very, very afraid over what in the world is, is uh, uh, happening uh, here because uh, David is, is traveling alone at this point in time. He has some men with him, but they're in hiding at this, at this point. And so because he was the king's a high government official, he was also the king's son-in-law. He was a captain over a thousand. Uh, he, he didn't travel alone. So why in the world is he here alone? And, and uh, it was just kind of a freaky kind of situation that shouldn't have been uh, very odd and that shouldn't have been happening. And, and so uh, he, he's, he's afraid of it and he, and he poses the questions. Now one of the reasons that it's important for us to take note of it, and again we won't get to it tonight, but we will next week, when he says, why are you alone and no one is with you? That indicates that Ahimelech is completely unaware of the division that has occurred now between Saul and David. That, that Saul wants David dead. He's, he's absolutely innocent of, of any, any knowledge uh, related to that. And so David said to Ahimelech the priest, and here's a lie that he uh, again tells, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, don't let anyone know anything about the business which I send you or what I have commanded you. Ahimelech, this is top secret. I've been sent out by the king himself. And if I told you what I was doing, I'd have to kill you. Well, not quite that far, but I mean something that's absolutely top secret. And I have, in, in terms of why am I alone, I'm not absolutely alone. I've directed my young men who are traveling with me to such and such a place. So they're off in, in hiding. Now, he, he tells this lie in, uh, to Ahimelech, and uh, it's a very, very crafty lie, and, and it's intended to stop any, any further questions by, by Ahimelech of him. And, uh, and, it, and it absolutely does that. Ahimelech doesn't ask him any further questions about what, he, what he's up to in that, that kind of, uh, of thing. What David doesn't realize, he can't realize it at the moment. And that's why God tells us not to lie as Christians because he, he, he can't explain every circumstance, uh, in every circumstance, why it's wise. It's just always wise. So we're, not, we're never to lie. When David lies to Ahimelech here 
about what he's doing and all of this kind of thing. He is putting in his lie, he is putting Ahimelech's life in danger. The high priest and all the other priests, priests will be slaughtered in the next chapter. And David will, will feel uh, considerable responsibility for that. So his lie puts Ahimelech in a danger that puts him in danger without Ahimelech knowing that he was being put in danger by the lie. If David had come to him and said, listen, there's a falling out between Saul and I on this. He's trying to hunt me down and kill me. I've got to get a weapon and I've got to get food. Is there anything you can do for me? Then Ahimelech could decide between him and the Lord whether he wanted to get involved or not. But if he got involved and said, all right, I'm going to give you food and I'm going to give you a weapon, then Ahimelech would know, all right, now I'm going to be hunted down by Saul. I've got to do what I've got to do for myself and my family. But because David kept Ahimelech in ignorance of what he was really doing, Ahimelech's life is now in danger because Saul is going to look at Ahimelech and consider him as being a conspirator with David and, and so it, it does that. It, it, it puts him in a, in a, needless, uh, a needless danger here. He should have been honest about it, given Ahimelech the freedom to make his choice in the situation, but he didn't, and it's going to have a, a, a terrible, terrible uh, end to it. So um, God, he doesn't, doesn't want our lies. He doesn't need our lies. David was going to be the king. God would have just done it a different way. But he feels like he's got to help God out with, with lying. And now, therefore, David said to him, uh, what, do you, what do you have on hand in terms of food? Give me, I need, about, I need five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever you, you've got here. So it, it, some nourishment. And the priest answered David and said, there's no common bread on hand. There's no just like bread that anybody can eat ar ar around here. Uh, but there is holy bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. So every, uh, the, apparently the tabernacle was in Nob at this point in time. And every week uh, there was the show bread, as we read about when we're going through the law of Moses and, and all. There was uh, each week on the Sabbath they would bake five loaves of bread. Don't think, you know, French uh, loaf or something, a loaf of French bread or something like that. They're more like buns. But they would be put out, 12 of them. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They would be put in the holy place in the tabernacle, which represented the presence of God there. And so it was a symbol to Israel that they were always in the presence of God. So it's the Sabbath day. They were changed out every Sabbath day. But only the priests could then eat that bread. So apparently it's the Sabbath day or the day after. These 12 loaves are there. And they've put the new loaves in their place for the coming week. And he's got this. And, and so he says, listen, it's really not legitimate to give to you to eat as a non-priest. But that's, that's all we've got here to give to you. I'll give it to you if at least the men have kept themselves from women. In other words, they've been ceremonially, uh, you know, they're ceremonially cleansed in, in, in order to eat this bread. So, you know, you look at Ahimelech here and... And he's, he's a very kind man. He's, he's, he's trying to help David out here uh, in, in the situation that he's, he's in, at least as much as he knows about it. And David answered the priest and he said, Truly women have kept 
been kept from us about three days since I came out. We've been away from our wives at least that long. And the vessels of the young men are holy. And the bread is in effect common, uh, even though it was consecrated uh, in the vessel uh, this day. So it's, it's already done its week's course. And so uh, now, you know, it's not really holy like it, it, it was. And so something for us to, to eat. And so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread. Which, were, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. He was detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. So Doeg was an Edomite. We're going to read more about him. He's a terrible human being. You, do, you hate to think that these kind of people exist, but they do exist. And they, they rise up every so often in, and, uh, in, in human history and do the ghastly things that they do. But the sad thing about it is Doeg, he was an Edomite, and Saul had conquered the Edomites is uh, in part of his battles and all, so probably had taken Doeg as a captive. He's very skilled, apparently, in herds and livestock, and so he became the head of, of uh, herdsmen of, of Saul's livestock. And uh, he's there at the tabernacle, um, apparently paying some kind of a vow to God. So he's been converted, uh, not on any deep level. To, he's a, he's, he claims to at least be a worshiper of the God of Israel, but we're going to see nobody can know God and do the things that he's about to do. And, and so he's there, he's keeping a vow. He's an outwardly religious man who is a monster inside. And that's, that's what he is. And uh, so they, they took note of the fact that he was there. David took note of the fact that he was there and that it could potentially be a problem. But even David couldn't uh, dream that Doeg would be the monster that he was. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not therefore... Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business requires haste. And so the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, here it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you, t- if you take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. And so here he now gets the weapon, and the, the Ahimelech and the priests, they have no weapons there at the tabernacle. They're men of peace. That's what they're about. They should have never had to defend themselves against any kind of violence. The only weapon they had was the sword of Goliath, which was just kind of a memento to David's great victory. And uh, David took the sword and said, there's none like it, give it to me. I mean, you can almost see him, you know, feeling in his hands once again, shifting hand to hand and, and uh, getting that whole feel back again. And uh, he knows he's got a good sword uh, in, in his hands and he takes it. So now he has food and he has a weapon. And David then arose and he fled that day from before Saul and he went to Achish, Uh, the king of Gath. And so David flees from Saul into a city called Gath. And Gath was one of the five uh, capital cities of the Philistines. And it happened to be the hometown of Goliath, the guy that he killed, the Philistine that he killed out in uh, in that field. You talk about jumping 
out of the frying pan into the fire. So why in the world would he go into Gath? He probably fled into Gath and into a stronghold, Philistine city, because he realized, all right, Saul can't, there's no way Saul's going to follow me here. So I'll deal with whatever problems I have among the Philistines. They're less than the problem I got with, with, uh, with uh, uh, Saul right now. And so I'll, I'll deal with one, you know, one thing at a time. And he heads into the city. Now, in his uh, humility, and it's, it's really cute, I think, of David here, um, he does not realize how famous he has become as an Israeli general. Uh, he's not just well-known in Israel. He is well-known among the Philistines. And so apparently, though, <clears throat> the king of Gath, Achish, uh, welcomed him in, even knowing his history, probably thrilled to hear about a division in the uh, Israeli leadership, a division between David and between Saul. And so that split probably was good news for him, and he offers David a sanctuary in Gath. The problem is, is not everybody's as excited uh, to have David in their midst as the king was. And so the servants of Achish said to him, Ah, is this not David, the king of the land? And did they not sing of him to one another in dances? I think they sang a song about him. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Isn't David the guy that they sang that about? And of course, they did sing that song about David. He was ten times the warrior and achiever that Saul ever was. Now when they're talking about David killing his tens of thousands, they're talking about Philistines. There isn't a family in Gath that doesn't want to kill David. There isn't a family in Gath that hasn't lost a son or a father or a relative or a friend in battle to David. And now David has put himself in Gath, and now he's recognized for who he is. Again, he doesn't realize how famous he has become. It would be like a Israeli general today waking up in the Gaza Strip alone. He would. It, you're, you're, the idea is, I'm not going to get out of here alive. There's so many people that would not only love to kill me, but consider it a pleasure to kill me, that there's, there's no hope for me. And so he gets recognized, and, and he learns now that that song that the Jewish women had sung about his victories and all, that it was just as well known among uh, the Philistines. And so he realizes he's uh, in, in uh, great, great danger. And it didn't help that he's carrying Goliath's sword around either. <laughs> so he just um, has more trust in people's grace than, than he ought to have at, at this point in time. So 
So he took these words to heart. He realized the implications of it. And he was very much afraid of Achish, the king of death, or uh, the king of Gath, the king of death for sure. As soon as he finds out, I'm going to be a dead man. And so this is what he did, his response in order to escape. He changed his behavior before them, and he pretended that he was insane, uh, he pretended madness in their hands. He scratched on the doors of the gate of the city, and he just began to drool all over himself. And he let his saliva fall down on his beard. Ever sometimes have the Bible and you just want to lift it up and say, Where's my David? Give me my David back. Who is this imposter? I mean, here is David. Again, you just think, I mean, one day he's out there with Goliath and all this thing, and then you look at this, and there's spit in his beard, and he's clawing on a wooden wall, and he's pretending he's insane. And where in the world did he learn to feign insanity so well? Except from watching Saul for years and soothing him with the music. So he knew, he knew what it looked like. He knew how to act the thing out, which probably gives us great insight into the severity of that demonic oppression that was on Saul's life when David was called in then to sing these, to play these songs and to play the music and, and maybe even sing songs about the Lord that would bring some relief uh, to Saul. And so he feigns this uh, madness and he's just acting like a wild kind of uh, crazy uh, uh, animal. Now, it's very probable that uh, David resorted to feigning madness uh, as a way of escape because in the ancient world there was a superstition that insane people were smitten by the gods. And because they were smitten by the gods, if you afflicted an insane person, then you would get the attention of the gods and they would afflict you. So it was obviously very superstitious and not true, but the upside of it is it prevented people from abusing people who were crazy and didn't need abuse on top of the problems that they were already uh, dealing with. And so that was the idea is that if you harmed an insane person, then you would provoke the wrath uh, of the gods. And so he's hoping that this would make the Philistines think twice about uh, harming him. And so uh, Achish's response here, he said to his servants, look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? He's a crazy man. What are you bringing him here? Have I need of madmen that you've brought this? Remember, he's in government. I don't need any more folks here that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence. Shall this fellow come into my house? And he says, don't you see I've got enough problems of my own? I don't need a, a madman introduced into my life on, on top of it. So uh, he, he uh, is, doesn't want anything to do with him. And then David is able to then depart from the city and, and move on. David, it's interesting, we look at this in, 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 without uh, you know, knowing the rest of the story a little bit. Um, we would look at this and say, oh, David, David was so clever in all of this. And, and uh, for the rest of his life, he'd think, man, I, that, I, could, boy, I, could just, I can do that insane thing just any old time. I did that really good. Psalm 34, and I think Psalm 56, 
of David both come out of this event. Both of them are entitled. We'll read one of them in just a moment. But both of them have the, uh, their, their title is coming out of this event in his life. When David was drooling in his beard and when he was scratching on the, the walls, uh, the, the gate of the city, inside he is saying, oh, please, God, please get me out of this. God, if you get me out of this, please, Lord, help me get me out of he is He is not trusting supremely in the physical thing that he's doing. He is begging God to get him out of the pickle and the poor decision and the crazy decision that he has made to put himself in that, that position uh, in, in Gath. And so he's just saying, God, would you just get me out of this mess that I've gotten myself into? And so David wasn't perfect, but he was uh, learning. And I think that uh, most of us in our Christian life have uh, some incident like David has, or quite a few that we can look back upon with some uh, embarrassment. But uh, we look back and we realize that God was bigger than all of it, and uh, he stepped into the situation and he rescued us. I, I, in this passage, to me, I, I think it's, it, 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 the, I would entitle it, When a Good Man Does a Dumb Thing. And do you believe that good men can do dumb things? I believe it. I believe it about David here. I believe it about every one of us in the room, men and women alike. Sometimes we just do dumb things. When a good man does a dumb thing, make a good country western song, wouldn't it? Right up their alley. I think what Christian... And what servant of the Lord doesn't know something of this? To have some chapter in our life, some incident or episode or series of them that we look back on with great embarrassment every time they come to our mind. And David has that here where we live way below our faith in God. We allow fear to drive us in the situation and then, boom, our feet of clay become so evident. David wasn't alone. Abraham did it. Sold his wife into a harem. God protected her. Think about Isaac doing the same thing with Rebecca. You think about Noah and his drunkenness. Think about Elijah and his crisis of faith after the victory at Mount Carmel. You think about Peter denying the Lord. His failure at Antioch. I'll tell you, every one of those lives, and David right here teaches us that with God there's life after these things and there's service. The callings and the, the giftings and the callings of God are without repentance. And when we do something stupid like this, I say stupid for me, when, when you do something ill-advised, And how the devil loves to come in and say, how are you ever going to amount to anything with that chapter in your life now? How are you going to be the king of Israel? Because what you did, you just did in public, buckaroo. 
How are you going to hold your head up as the king of Israel when Achish for the rest of his life and all of his officers and all of Gath know what you did in the city of Gath and you made a fool of yourself there. You ruined your witness for God. You did a stupid thing that you did there and all. No, David, God, you've blown it. God doesn't have anything else for you to do. You're not going to be the king. That was too much. That was too public. That was too bad. There's no future for you. And, And Satan comes in with that kind of condemnation so often related to our failures, not just before we come to know the Lord, but after we come to know the Lord. And Satan is a... Terrible underestimator of the grace of God toward his people and toward his children. He always overestimates our failures. He underestimates the grace of God. And David did fail in his witness here that God had 40 plus more years of ministry ahead for him. And again, to fully understand the rest of the story concerning this event in David's life, you have to read the two psalms that he penned as a result of it. Again, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. And in those psalms, there are psalms that are great encouragement to our faith when the fear of man would become the dominant influence in our lives of the greatness of God's grace, of God's great desire to deliver us, not only out of danger, but out of our own foolishness. I wish I never made a mistake. I wish I never failed. I wish I never did privately. I wish I never did publicly. I wish my witness was always sterling and Christ-like. But it isn't. And I don't look for ways to blow it or to mess things up. But I'm not in heaven yet, and you're not in heaven yet either. And there has to be that recognition and the realization there's a future even after we do something Stupid. This isn't a shining moment in David's life, but it's not the end of the world and it's not the end of David's ministry. God had grace for it. And we need to know that, not only for ourselves, but we need to know that concerning others also. Where you look at them and say, that wasn't their best day. That wasn't their finest hour. But I won't let that hour define them for the rest of their lives. God has the grace for it. And I think every single one of us knows something of Gath. So embarrassing, is so humbling. My witness has been destroyed forever. But David teaches us there's life after it. You've got to clean up your beard. Got to get those splinters out from under your nails. <laughs> Got to leave all that behind. Got to learn from it and then move forward. I think it's important for us as Christians to realize that there is a such thing as a successful failure. And a failure can be considered successful when I realize I fell short of God's will for me 
in that situation. And then I learn all that I'm supposed to learn from that situation. So what God's Word tells me to do in that kind of a situation the next time. And then I do what God's Word tells me to do the next time I find myself in that situation. That's a successful failure. Let me get you to turn with me over to uh, Psalm very quickly in Psalm uh, 34. Here's one of the psalms that David brought out of it. In fact, let me, I'll leave 34 to, for you. Let me read a few verses and then I'm going to jump to a word that's repeated over and over again. And it, that's the word delivered. Here's what came out of that whole incident. I will bless the Lord at all times. That's one of the things that makes us love Him all the more is how gracious He is to us in our failure. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. And that's what we're going to do in communion tonight. I sought the Lord and He heard me and, here's the word, delivered me from all of my fears. Then notice in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all those, uh, 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 encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Down in verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He guards all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. As we pass the elements, the symbols of Jesus' body and of His blood here tonight, and as the bread is passed and you take the cracker and hold on to it and we'll partake together. But I think every one of us in this room has a gaffe in our life. And we can all look back on how graciously and tenderly and faithfully God dealt with us in that particular season in our life. Let's give Him praise tonight for the good and gracious God He is to us, even in our times, and especially in our times of failure, in our times of gaffe. If the worship team come forward, the men come forward, we'll now serve communion.